Welcome to the Safe Space Bible Study Podcast. This week we studied Genesis 4 and got into some of the ideas surrounding the brothers' sacrifices, explored comparisons of Sumerian mythology and Genesis, and shared our thoughts on the genealogies of the Bible. A good precursor to listening to this episode would be to watch the video from the Bible Project on Genesis 1-11 through and then read Genesis 4. It's not a long chapter at all. I've included a link to each in the notes. One of the main sources I used for this study was the JPS Tour commentary on Genesis, which I found has really opened up the book for me. I couldn't recommend it enough. For anyone following along, next week we'll begin a study of Noah and the Flood. Enjoy the talk. through that. The, um, <clears throat> the first thing that I noticed uh, was the difference between the offerings that Cain and Abel had <clears throat> and the wording of it, um, which was that Cain just brought some of his stuff, brought some vegetables. Um, Abel brought good stuff. He brought his best. He brought out the choicest meats. He brought out the firstborn. He brought out he brought out the good stuff. And that quality of difference is why God took favor to that offering and so on and so forth. Um, and that's something that I didn't notice um, when I initially read through this um, forever ago. Um, but it stood out to me on my latest reading. So. Well, that's like the thing, like, when going through this for the first time, it just seems like such an ar- archaic story, because you have a god, like, like for some reason or another, like, not accepting, like, an mm-hmm. offering from one brother, and you're just like, well, this is kind of vague, and so you just, like, really want to figure out why in the world that happened, and there's definitely a difference there between, like, the description of their offerings. Um, does anybody else have comments on that particular subject? Well, I think it's interesting, too, because Genesis 3 just ends with them being driven out of the garden, they were naked and ashamed, um, and now we're in chapter 4, like, there's a couple sons, but, like, we don't really have, like, we don't know a lot at that, about what the relationship between human and God was at this point, because this is, like, pre-law, like, humans are no longer like God, and so it's, uh, like, I, I just wonder, like, this is all new, there is no, um, you know, way about going to give sacrifices or offerings, um, so I, I don't know, I, from Cain's perspective, like, it's almost like, he didn't know any better, maybe, yeah, absolutely, probably knew better than to, to kill someone, yeah, maybe, I mean, there was no law against it, it was just, um, I think an interesting spin on, or like, What's an interesting translation is that it says that Cain, like, became angry, and um, I just got a commentary series on the book of Genesis from the Jewish Publication Society, and it's been, like, a really good read. Mm -hmm. They just dive in depth to, like, every little detail of at least this story so far. I've read it, like, up through chapter 5, I think. But, um... Actually, like, the word that they translated to anger actually means something closer to distressed. Mm-hmm. So, um, whenever it says afterwards, like, in 
whenever God asks him, like, why is your face fallen? Um, this is more of like a, like a falling of depression. And this is kind of trickling out from where, you know, in the story of Adam and Eve, you have the initial, like, wrong, or like, the initial, like, not listening to God and just this, like, figurative, like, or literal, however you want to take it, um, story. And, um, and you just kind of see this trickle into, like, worse and worse acts. So what you see is that the humans are given a choice. And then whenever Cain responds, like, sadly to his sacrifice not being accepted, then uh, God kind of clarifies in this that he, um, let's see. Chapter 7? Yeah, he kind of gives him this choice to overcome his sadness here. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Which is a really interesting response to somebody who's kind of down in the dumps about this sacrifice. And really just like the vagueness of it, um, I can dive into this a little bit deeper, um, is has kind of caused a lot of people to really, like, obviously try to figure out what in the world's going on in this story, because, like, all of these, like, pretty much the entire creation narrative up through quite a bit of Genesis is really hard to figure out, because it takes a while before you get to anything that resembles, like, really close to, like, detailed historical account. Um, there is one interesting thing where the name for Cain in Hebrew is Kayan, um, and it's very closely related to the words spoken by Eve um, at the very beginning of this chapter, which is, I have gained a male child from the Lord. It's um, from the Hebrew stem, Kana, would be like close to how you pronounce it, and it's here connected with the same stem of Cain, which is really interesting. So what Kayan means is, let's see, form, let's see, um, something like possession, would be like a, um, a physical possession, and then this uh, verb, kana, is, let's see, yeah, to acquire, own, so there's like a lot of this language just built into his name, where you kind of see um, what's really interesting in this story is that right after Cain kills his brother, it shows this narrative of civilization being built, pretty much. And you kind of have this arc of, um, just conveniently enough, this name in the story that means like a, like a, something like material wealth going on to like kind of start civilization. And interestingly enough, Abel's name means, or in Hebrew, is hevel, which means breath or nothingness, um, which also kind of mimics what happens in the story. And when I was studying this, I like I've been digging in a lot into ancient Sumerian mythology. And have any of you guys like dug into any of that? Like, like not very deeply, and not very recently. So there's like a lot of evidence of early Genesis echoing ancient Sumerian mythology, okay? Um, and this is just the area from which these stories came out of. 
and as time has progressed, they've just like archaeology has discovered a lot more. So this was somewhere in like the 1800s that they discovered these stories that, like, these like stories written on tablets that like predate um, anything that we have of any scripture, but just line up really similarly. So, for example, there is a story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, which has like quite a few tablets to it. I think it's something like 14 tablets. But in the 11th tablet of the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, there's a story about Gilgamesh's search for a way to cheat death in the form of a plant that restores youth. And a snake steals it while he's bathing and sneaks off into the water. So it's really interesting. You kind of have this, these stories that kind of tie... Um, whatever's going on in Genesis to the area that they came from. Yeah. And so I was just looking into this, and it even goes on, like, he meets this person named, like, Utnapishtim, who tells the story of centuries past in the epic that the gods brought a flood to the earth because they were angry at mankind. The god E warned warned him and told him to build an enormous boat to save him yeah. and like you just have stuff like lining up to where it even goes down to the detail of like afterwards he first sets loose a dove and then a swallow and then finally a raven which found land and then the god like a god created a rainbow and placed it in the sky as a reminder to the gods and a pledge to mankind that there would be no more floods it's like it's like super similar very wise. right and so i was trying to dig into some like, there's not a direct parallel with the Cain and Abel story. There's something really similar, called like Inten and in Imesh. Imesh and Inten or something like that. And, um, but a lot of the writing is missing, but it tells the story about two brothers where their occupations are similar, but the one difference is they kind of make up in the end instead of one brother killing the other. And um, I was just looking into um, Mesopotamian history. And it seems like, so like in Genesis here, um, what's going on is it tells this weird story about one brother killing the other because like these sacrifices, like one of them was accepted and the other one wasn't. And then it shows like civilization, like the birth of civilization afterwards. And this just trickles out as, as you read through Genesis. And in 10,000 BC, in the region of Mesopotamia, there was an agricultural revolution. And what happened during this, happened during this agricultural revolution is that the, the major way of life before that, previously, was something like shepherding, which would have been like a nomadic lifestyle, something like that, which was the, the um, profession that Abel held in this story. And what replaced that was this like new technology, like they, um, they had created a lot of um, things to just help with the production and just with the, the crazy amount of births that were going on and trying to be creative and feeding everybody that was coming along. There was this um, transition from one way of life to another in the world. And I think that's a really interesting parallel where you have one brother killing another and both of those brothers seeming to, it's, like in some way, like figuratively symbolize these two ways of life before civilization started blossoming in Mesopotamia. 
you know, like 12,000 years ago. Um, however, and does, does anybody have any notes on that? I don't, <laughs> or like any comments to make? So there's, there's a lot more in there too. Oh, it's very interesting. You found it's it's interesting, but I've been reading that that commentary series, and I, I'll just read a little bit from it and what he has to say because I thought it was even like more interesting than than what I could come up with on my own. Um, so what he had to say was. Uh, this narrative has often been interpreted as a reflection of the traditional conflict between the farmer and the nomad. And its supposed bias in the favor of the latter is seen as representing a nomadic ideal in Israel. However, this is unlikely. The evidence for such an ideal in biblical literature is extremely flimsy. Further, there is not the slightest suggestion in the text of any comparative evaluation of the vocations of Cain and Abel, nor is there the slightest disparagement of the tiller of the soil. On the contrary, agriculture is regarded as the original occupation of man in the Garden of Eden as well as outside it. The reason for God's acceptance of only one of them might be drawn from the way the offerings are explained, so like what you were saying earlier. Um, Abel's being the choicest of his flocks seems like a step up from Cain's sacrifice simply being from the fruit of the soil. The narrative contains the conveys the fundamental principle of Judaism that the act of worship must be informed by genuine devotion of the heart. It also teaches that the two aspects of divine worship, the cultic act and the verbal element, are separate in origin. Further on, in verse 26, prayer is said to be a later development, independent of sacrifice. This constitutes a revolutionary development in the religious thinking of the ancient world, where the two elements were inextricably interconnected, the one inoperative without the other, because the religious act was essentially magical and required for its effectiveness both the spoken word and the practice. By severing the two, the religion of Israel stressed the exceptional, non-magical nature of prayer. And this was like the first time in ancient literature that that anything like this was presented. And what's interesting is that, like, digging into those ancient Sum Sumerian myths, like, there's a seven-tablet story called the Enuma Elish that is a story of creation. It's a story of, like, gods warring and battling, and then the humans being kind of this after, like, whatever is happening of consequence of the gods, like, the humans are suffering the consequences. And then you see this kind of like neat biblical picture in the beginning of Genesis, which is just God said that this, um, God said, let there be light, and then there was light, and God called it good. Everything's like really, really neat in this seven-day story of creation. And it seems like just because there is that difference there between the other cultures and what like the message that Genesis was trying to convey which was the first of its kind. Um, another note being that, you know, all these stories had all these other gods warring with each other that embodied the elements of the earth. So a lot of people in that day, they would see like the ocean and the ocean is like pow more powerful than a human could be. So that's like this God and that kind of gets baked into their culture. And the sun is a God and the moon is a God and all these things are God. And then these people were the first to come on the scene and say, no, like, we have one God, and this God is above all of the elements. And, and you see a lot of hints to these elements throughout the story, 
Um, but there is in no way uh, the hint of like any of those elements coming into conflict with God whatsoever. And it's just like completely unique for that time. Um, but that's that's like all the digging I did on that particular topic. I know that's like a lot to chew on. I feel like it took me even just like three or four times of even reading that over to even be able to digest it. It's kind of kind of dense. But um, does anything else come to mind in this story? Or any responses um, to that? <laughs> this is kind of a mad tangent. But I'm realizing how many times God asks questions. Yeah. Um, and a, so it's a very relational, like, if I'm asking you a question, yeah. I'm enabling you to have a response. That yes. may not be what I'd like to have, but it may be something that you need to deal with um, personally for your reaction. I'm not just telling you how to feel. Well, there's like a personal, there's a personal responsibility to mm -hmm. it. And, and that is like a direct like contrast to the other ancient myths of that day where there's right. nothing like that going on. Like the gods just had like the power to do everything. Right. And yeah. it sounds like with, um, with other ancient stories, mankind was around, <laughs> but it was essentially like, oh, well, the crumbs fell and the mice get them. Yeah. And in this way, God's interacting, which is, especially when I see you know, questions, who told you you were naked, or, yeah. um, um, why are you angry, that basically God's even dealing with, I know you're feeling this way, I can respond to this, and I'm going to guide you through this, which I've never even, I've never realized that before, huh. how he is essentially just saying, I know what you're feeling right now, this is, this can go wrong, yeah. check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> what I really like about him asking questions is that he's he's asking questions to have us come up with the answers to them. So just telling us what the final solution is or what to what to do next. He's mm -hmm. it is it is a it is a hole in the hand. It is trying to nurture that that individuality individuality mm -hmm. of the person. It's just I think it's a great way to lead. I know my boss actually does that. He doesn't ever really tell me what to do. He asks me questions. He's like, all right, so what do you think is the proper thing to do next? I'm like, well, I guess it's to do this thing. He's like, yeah, probably. <laughs> and so very consistently does, does things that way. And it's, I think it's a wonderful way to lead people. I think it's a wonderful way to help people grow. So it's cool seeing that in the Bible like that. It's very empowering. Yeah. Um, I would get a kick out of my, my mom ran a, day, ran a daycare in our house, and a lot of times just the way you deal with children is very different because you want them to respond. Or I would get a kick out of the children's television shows. You just go, oh, this is really dumb. They're just asking, like, how do you say this word? Or what is this really simple concept? Do you see Yeah, or, you know, do you see the ball? And, you know, the kids yell, it's behind the tree. And there's a, there's a call and response that happens. And I think that enables and empowers our learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's like, there's this like echoing of, you know, there's the way that the Old Testament is organized is 
um, the Torah, which would be the first five books, and then you've got the wisdom literature and the mm. and the uh, the writings, or the prophets and the writings, and within the Old Testament you have what's called the wisdom literature, which is like you have Proverbs, which kind of gives you this. It's like like this book is you was used. Um, very, very heavily, like it was a very, just like ingrained in the root of ancient Judaism is like seeking wisdom in this. And so you kind of see those first um, calls forward to that tradition forming mm -hmm. where somebody does something, God asks um, a question, and then the human is left mm -hmm. to like really like figure out what to do has the freedom to do whatever, and then you get to see the consequences play out. And, you know, I, th I think a lot of times, I, and I don't know, I, I had a 10-year gap from church, so this might not be the case anymore, but I know whenever I was going to church when I was younger, a lot of the common, like, thinking was that Christianity was something that, like, moved on from, like, the archaic ways of the past. And that being like these kind of weird stories about like God punishing people um, in the Old Testament and just not like really understanding the full context of it. And I think this story kind of gets put in that as well. It's just because really like the only sermons that I could find online of, of this particular story were just like extremely like fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> you know. I think like the only people that really dig into this stuff like in a church setting um, are just kind of like the older generation of Christians um, and just like the kind of church that I grew up in really where they were yeah. I think that's kind of a shame I think that um, ignoring these kind of stories and the Old Testament in general is a just a bad idea um, there's a reason that the Bible has all of that with it um, and there's a reason that those stories get passed down. It's not just... I know that there's potentially a lot of hate-mongering and everything else that can come with Old Testament, but there's a lot of wisdom, and there's a lot of... I think a lot of really good life guidance advice type deal that comes with the Old Testament. And I would love to see more sermons like actually diving into these not so neat stories you know these well, it's just like so far removed culturally exactly like mm -hmm. it is so long ago and you just don't understand like a lot of it's really poetry like it's a poetic form and a lot of these conversations they are like constructed in poetic form and even like even just like starting off with genesis i keep going back to genesis one just because it's so interesting just kind of this um what it establishes in um, up to this story is you have this seven-day creation story in which like the first um, like the first act which is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth his seven words and if you're looking in the Hebrew those seven words have 28 letters which is divisible by seven <laughs> there's like sevens all over the place in there mm -hmm. you have six days of God creating things. There are two groups of three there that relate to each other. The mm -hmm. first act 
relates to the fourth act, second to the fifth, third to the sixth, and in which God creates, um, and in each, in each like three day section, God creates seven things or four things, which like add up to seven each. I feel like trying to dig into that stuff, and then. Um, even though God is only working for six of those days, he makes it a point to say seven times over the course of those six days that things are good, which is really crazy. Mm-hmm. And then you have um, all of these other sevens and even all the way up into this story here where, um, let's see. What's crazy is, is um, like, well, you obviously hear whenever, like, Cain has killed his brother that um, Cain becomes afraid that he might be killed. It's also kind of weird because you, like, wonder, like, well, like, are there, like, who else is he afraid of? Aren't these the only, like, mm-hmm. two <laughs> other people here? Um, and God says that if anybody kills Cain, that he'll be avenged, he'll be avenged sevenfold. Which is where that awesome band gets their name, but <laughs> um, and I never made that connection. Wow, wow! <laughs> I had never made it either. So I was like, oh, gosh dang! Uh-huh. There it is. But um, but what's funny is is this story kind of tricks you, is, um, and this was the like one that I figured out on my own, and I was just like so stoked on this. It's like sevenfold. Um, you think that maybe that's just like, oh yeah, they just use that in the place of like, you'll be like avenged a lot, you know, um, just so it can like tie into the earlier, earlier stories in Genesis. Mm-hmm. And um, there are some that believe that maybe it could mean like seven generations, um, mm-hmm. like seven generations of vengeance. <laughs> and then what does that mean, like? That's that's still like kind of under this blanket of this like vengeful God that's gonna like punish people and all this. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it leads into the idea of like family curses, generational curses. Think of like uh, holes and having a curse put on your Yelnet's family for yeah. generations to come. That type of deal. And and then I noticed going through the the genealogy. So like it it shows that like Cain and his wife have children. And then what's crazy is seven generations down the line, Lamech is born. And then Lamech has the two wives, and then they have, or not like, how is it? How is it? No, no, no. It's, it's um, five generations down the line is Lamech. Mm-hmm. And then Lamech has two wives, and then they each have two children. And then after that generation, so that would be the sixth, Adam and Eve have another, like, have another offspring. And on the seventh generation, this person named uh, Seth is born, which is coming in as the replacement for Abel, which kind of lines in with that idea that seven, sevenfold could mean seven generations. And it's kind of this more polite, like, well, how would Cain be, like, avenged if somebody had killed him? And you think, well, God would, like, punish them. But then it's pretty interesting that just like in the background there, seven generations later, the replacement for Abel comes, like his death was avenged. And 
And so there are these like little nuggets like hidden like in, in all these stories. It's 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 like really, really fun to get into. A lot of it like sometimes I feel like I'm stretching things a little bit because I want to make it all line up. But like that that one's nuts. Um, I find it interesting that basically God gives him his punishment. Yeah. And then he's like, This is rough and someone's gonna kill me. Like yeah. It's like a he's weird the first murderer, and then he's already worried about getting killed himself. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just bizarre to me. Yeah. I'm trying to digest that. I, I can only imagine that there was a a scary atmosphere type deal going on. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, God may or may not have been very intimidating in that particular moment, and mm-hmm. the idea of death was just... Well, like, um... Well, that kind of, like, people being, like, scared of God narrative thing, that was, like, so baked into the culture of that time. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to, like, assume that if somebody was... So, like, I kind of put it in the context of, like, what was Jesus doing when he was walking around? Like, like, King Herod the Great died, like, right around whenever Jesus was born. And that guy was the Roman-appointed King of the Jews. That was before Christ lived. There was somebody that was walking around called King of the Jews, which is like like such a parallel with Jesus' mm-hmm. life. And then at the time when Jesus was walking around and doing his ministry, um, the I think it was Tiberius was the Roman emperor at the time. He was the technically like the son of the divine. So it would have been like this... Son of God. Yeah, the son of God. But three years before, like... Or really, like, around whenever Jesus' ministry started, and it might have been within a couple of years there, Tiberius actually grew tired, grew weary of being the emperor of Rome, and um, peaced out, and, like, lived outside of Rome. So for the first time in the the narrative of Rome having a son of God, they did not have a son of God. And then Jesus comes onto the scene, which is really interesting. And so... I've been thinking, like, Jesus was heavily influenced, like, this was the bread and butter of his message was these old texts. Mm -hmm. And you think, like, where does, like, could those kinds of ideas where you have, like, some kind of, like, insane cultural response to something crazy that's going on, could that same stuff be happening in the very beginning of it? And it does seem like there's some kind of some kind of, like, message that they're trying to convey whenever you compare it, or whenever I've compared it to the other myths. This just seems a lot more neat. And you'll see, like, um, you'll see these acts of, like, what seem like weird religion. Like, my, like, I went to a church that, um, you know, there was, like, a guy that, that, uh, made his wife sleep in a tent when she was on her period. Like, that kind of stuff. Like, that happened in my lifetime. And you kind of see the, like, you kind of see these echoes in these old stories of religion that's kind of like that if you take everything word for word, like, literally. But then, if, like, for, for instance here, like, the JPS Torah series comments on, like, religious corruption in this story, um, in that Cain's depression, uh, after he's killed his brother, gives, or before he kills his brother, um, gives way to an irrational act of aggression 
The first recorded death is not from natural causes, but by human hands. An ironic comment on the theme of chapter 3. Chapter they eat the fruit, God says that, you know, you will, like, curse is the soil because of you, and you will, like, work all the days of your life until you die, mm -hmm. kind of thing. But then the first death doesn't even come, like, due to natural causes. The first death happens with their first offspring. Um, Man and woman had striven to gain immortality, but their firstborn brings the reality of death into the world. The narrative illustrates one of the most lamentable aspects of the human condition, one that is a recurrent theme in the Bible, namely the, re the corruption of religion, an act of piety can degenerate into bloodshed. And thinking of this in terms of, like, if there's this hidden message of the two types of sacrifices given to God and that being like baked and like thinking of this the Bible as this continuous story of people getting too religious and then somebody pulling them forward to the next step and then like kind of devolving back into like too religious again and then the next step and then too religious again and then the next step and then Jesus bringing people out of like the crazy religious way of the past, it seems like there's something that is just going on over and over and over and over again um, in the entire Bible. And, and this, this story, at, at the very least, like has hints towards that, that kind of a theme. Um, but, yeah. Um, another cool little nugget uh, whenever the Lord says to Cain, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Um, the Hebrew word for blood, danim, is plural. A usage that, with rare exceptions, appears in the context of bloodshed or blood guilt. An expounding of the word takes the plural to include, apart from the blood of the victim, also that of the potential offspring outdoomed never to be born. And the Jewish Mishnah, Sanhedrin, and the Targums uh, read, and these are just like religious texts uh, in, Jewish, in the Jewish tradition, uh, whoever takes a single life destroys thereby an entire world. Wow. It's like such a heavy meaning into one word. <laughs> just, no, man. That's a, that's, a, that's a heavy thing to say. And you, you see... Like, just that one sentence, like, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Like, how much meaning is just in, like, one word of that? It just, like, kind of opens that up, and you kind of see more of a, a compassionate nature um, to, to what's going on in the story. <laughs> so, and in a strange way, like, because blood is plural, and he has, has this legacy, it's like, a mass genocide yeah. in, in a kind of metaphysical way. I'm just like, okay, there's half of this. <laughs> you two were in charge of populating this garden, this yeah. world. That I called good. Yeah. So why are you guys calling anything bad? Like, why isn't it good enough? And that's like, that's just kind of a, a the thematic, like, it's just like the human condition mm -hmm. where like we don't appreciate things as much as we could and I know I don't you know 
I my car broke down on the way home from work, but like I have really good friends. I have a wonderful partner. Um, and life is like I have an okay relationship with my parents, <laughs> you know. And and I know that could be a lot worse. And um, that's just like baked into the human condition. Is is everything is so short sighted? Like when anything goes wrong, like like what is happening to me? Like what is happening to me right now? What's happening to me right now? I'm mm -hmm. scared. I'm operating in fear. Like I'm worried about this, 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 this. And you see that echoed in just how Cain responds to the consequences of his actions. You know? Do you think people in like ancient Judaic culture, I mean, look at our magazines now, they're all self and everything is I, this. Do you think they, how do you think their perspective on their selves was different from, like, I live 600 miles from my family, and somehow I survived. But that would have been completely un, you know, that's across the universe for. Yeah, I mean, like, obviously back in the day there wasn't, you weren't, uh, like, there's not much of a concept of a transplant, like, you, right. you lived where you lived, and that was kind of it. Uh, and there was, like, everything had to be so much more communal, and I mean, I think you see that when, like, they talk about themselves as, like, the nation of Israel, mm -hmm. the different tribes, and the different family names that are passed down throughout scripture, and even, I mean, when you flash forward and look at, like, the genealogies at the beginning of Matthew or the beginning of Luke, and you can see, like, they have a clear lineage that they're like, yeah, I'm the son of this person, and this person, and this person, mm -hmm. and this person, and this person, and tracing back to Abraham, so I think they... Like, they were a lot more communal, but I think they they had to be. As for, like, Genesis 4, like, I mean, there's only a handful of people on the earth, so right. you could make the argument they were uh, much more individualistic because there was not yet a community formed, or they were a lot more communal because they were the only people around to survive with and to cultivate the earth and to to maintain flocks of people. Flocks of people. Flocks of people. Flocks of <clears throat> cattle, whatever cats. whatever their, flocks their of livestock flocks of choice of was. Somebody's got to maintain those cows. Sheep. Like, a couple of notes just on, like, the, the genealogy portion. Mm -hmm. um, one, like, it's it's pretty, like, I don't know, it, it just seems like the world that they lived in whenever this stuff was written was Mesopotamia um, in the Fertile Crescent. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing that happened there uh, um, and what inspired a lot of flood myths, most likely, was that, like, um, like every year just the way that the land fell like if if there were like heavy rains like the whole area would flood like very very frequently that was a common thing um, but what's really interesting is you see you know like these first people here you see Enoch founded a city and named 
or Cain founded a city and uh, named the city after his son Enoch. Um, and then to Enoch was born Arad. And that second name there, Arad, there's actually um, the first city that archaeologists can find evidence of in that area is called Eridu, which is really, really similar to the name Arad. And because of that, there are some people that um, believe that um, that named the city after his son uh, belongs uh, belongs to the next one down, or it's just so close there. And I think um, really the reasoning behind that is because whenever you dig into like the uh, the actual languages that were used, the letters were very similar. Mm -hmm. They seem like yeah. Genealogies are always interesting because they're they're there for a purpose and they're like really easy to skip over for us because we like we don't know the territory or the land or like the, these kinds of things as intimately or like off the top of our head. But I mean, when you look at especially when you get further into Genesis, where um, like the story of Jacob and Esau, for instance, like Esau becomes. God curses him, um, and he becomes like the, the, gets renamed Edom, or is the father of Edom, and they form the Edomites, who are like a nation that, when Israel uh, is fleeing Egypt and coming back into the promised land, like they, like, they kill all of those people. Wow. Uh, and so it's, it, but it's like a, genealogies are like a weird, tricky thing, because you, you recognize, like, this is a, all of this is written by like a people in a time and a place who's talking about like their origins and like their, you know, is it really the warrior god saying go and kill all these people or is it, you know, them reverse engineering into the story like, oh yeah, like back in the day, the father of these guys, God cursed them. Like, it's not a big deal. We can take them out. So it's, it's like, like, and legitimately, I mean, there's a lot of like scholars and people who say like, yeah, a lot of this was like sort of reverse engineered. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you you flash forward again to like Matthew, Luke, the genealogies there, where both Mary and Joseph are from the line of David, and that's like really important uh, in the like the fulfillment of the covenants and how everything comes to pass. And so there, I don't know, it's a weird both and of like these are important, but also. Uh, they Casual are, are sometimes important because it's the Israelites telling a story in reverse. Hmm. That's yeah. more depth than the thing I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> stuff gets like deep quick. Like really any of it like you can dive into. Language use, like um, did you did you have something you were going to talk about? I did, I was going to that's fine. <laughs> I was just I was just, it was jumping back to the how God asks questions and I had I had kind of highlighted some stuff in in my Bible app earlier just stuff that I found interesting. I don't remember all the reason I highlighted all of it, but I do remember why I highlighted um, the God asking Cain and him saying I'm not my brother's keeper. Yeah. Um, and the way I look at it, based on what we said prior about questions and answers with God, uh, that was a very, very dismissive and, like, I'm not playing your game type of answer from, from Cain. 
the way I look at it, just like a... Now, we'll cut this one off here. We're not going to lead to the answer that you want me to find. It's just... I don't know. And then... Then God comes in with... After you mentioned it, it was even more big, but I can hear your brother's blood cry out, like, oh, you're not going to play my game? <laughs> and then just... Here's what's going on. Let's let's talk. Let's actually work through this. Come on. So that was... Um, the other, like, another thing really about all this, uh, genealogies is that each Hebrew name has a meaning, um, it was baked in to the culture, your name was believed to, like, um, give your destiny, so it's, it's always a really interesting study, I know, like, Andrew, um, which I think we're going to go through this, but he was digging into the, the meanings and the names in like Genesis 10. I think there's a longer genealogy. And that, um, if you look at the meanings of all of the names, it spells out a story that's very similar to Jesus, which is really interesting. Um, and there's something like really weird going on with this one too, where you have like, if Cain means like material wealth, um, Enoch is like this, this like continuation, like it's this continuation from Cain. Um, Irad, uh, I forget what Irad means, but then Mahujael means something like uh, who is of God. Methusael means something like who brings his death. Really mm -hmm. interesting. Um, and then Lamech is like poor or made low. Mm -hmm. Jabal is something like he who runs. Uh, Jubal is something like he that glides away. Uh, Zillah was something like a, or Adah was something like a, an ornament. Zillah was uh, so it, it's just like it's interesting to go through those like because I, I feel like really like these these texts um, um, probably have like different layers of meaning. There's like this belief in the Jewish tradition that the Torah uh, has 70 faces to view it from. Where if you knew all of the lenses to view the Torah from, it could give you like a, a deeper layer to a meaning of the story. Which is really, really kind of cool language for a book. Um, and digging more into like, I've been digging a lot into like the Hebrew language lately. Um, and uh, there's kind of a relational aspect with the language that gets lost when it's translated to English. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, there's uh, uh, one of the instances of man and woman in Hebrew is ish and isha. And uh, what's interesting is ish and isha both have, um, they both have one letter that the other one does not. So it's like three letters each, um, and they both have two of the same letters, and then the third letter is different. And if you take those letters and you spell those letters out, uh, it spells um, L, which was like this origin name for God, which is really interesting. And if you um, 
take the letters out. So if you take God out of the relationship, it would be the figurative language uh, of those names. What you get is fire and fire. Because <laughs> you're left with the same letters. Which is <laughs> really interesting. So it's like, wow. A lot of really interesting things with the language. But, um, which makes me like want to dig into this stuff more. I really, really liked that um, explanation of blood uh, yeah. in this story. I was like, that one like hit me hard when I read that the first time. Um, That's why I love commentaries. Oh, dude. And just having all of it right there. I, I mean, doing the research yourself is also great, but like having just someone else tear it all down for you so you can just casually read through and understand all of it. It's like, it's a nice guide. Um, I'm like an on and off fan of Rob Bell, <laughs> but um, I feel like I always take him in chunks. But uh, he recommended that JPS Torah series. Hmm. Um, and his book, What is the Bible? And I really liked mm -hmm. that book. It was, it was great. I read that one yet. It's, it's good. I think you, you said that you didn't like all the questions. <laughs> Question yeah, marks. I like, <laughs> It's sometimes hard for me to, to read Ron Bell in, in large quantities because of the format that he writes. It's just like. The, yeah, lot, lots of questions, lots of blank space on the page. Where are you? Let's get somewhere. Yeah. Where are you going? So I feel like he'll, he'll like dive in deep, and I'm like, okay, let's dive in deep some more. You know, like he, he has some really good things to say, and that book is definitely worth a read. He explained <coughs> Jesus saying, like, come, uh, Jesus at the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles on the last day, like, had the, like, the most clear explanation I've ever heard of that, where I, could, mm. I was reading it, and I could just, it's like I was, like I could see the picture of it, and anytime somebody can explain something like that, it's really mm -hmm. Some notes on a couple of inaccuracies in the talk. In my explanation of the difference between the Hebrew words for man and woman, the letters that are taken out are Y-H, not E-L. This name for God is an abbreviated form of Yahweh that appears in the Bible about 50 times, mostly in Psalms. Secondly, I overshot by two tablets when I guessed the Epic of Gilgamesh contained 14. I'm just really into sevens. Thanks for listening, and feel free to join us in our study of Noah and the Flood next week.